This is Dave Miros from Spock's Beard and Pattern Seeking Animals, and you're listening to Michael's Record Collection. Hello, and welcome to Michael's Record Collection, where we talk about great music with the people who make it and the people who love it. For this episode, I'm extremely excited to announce that my guest is none other than Dave Miros from Spock's Beard and Pattern Seeking Animals. Fantastic bass player, a big fan of his work, and of course, that of both of his bands. He's also been with Iron Butterfly, Eric Burden and the Animals. Uh, he's had a, a long, illustrious career, and uh, very happy to get some time with him to talk about a couple of new releases coming out on uh, Inside Out Music. His new band, Pattern Seeking Animals, not really that new. They've been around about five years now. New album called Spooky Action at a Distance comes out October 27th on Inside Out Music. And very excited about this. Spock's Beard's Feel Euphoria album is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. They have a special 20th anniversary vinyl reissue coming out on November 24th. It is the first in a series. So the Nick Virgilio era Spock's Beard albums are coming out on vinyl, and uh, hopefully the Neil Morris ones and Ted Leonard ones will follow as well. Before we get to that interview, I want to remind you to go to michaelsrecordcollection.com, where there are links to everything. You can find a link there to my newsletter. You can get it free in your email every week. You can find a link to my Patreon, where you can sign up for as little as $2 a month. And of course, the more you support the show, the more your benefits. There's also links there to all my social media. Check them out at Mike's Records on Twitter and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and even TikTok, although I hardly TikTok. With that out of the way, let's get to that interview with Dave Miros, huh? Here we go. Welcome to Michael's Record Collection. I'm extremely excited to have with me from the band Spock's Beard and also Pattern Seeking Animals. He's also played with a lot of other uh, artists that we'll get into Dave Maros is with me. Dave, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Good to be here. Got a couple of releases coming up. Uh, a couple, one a brand new Pattern Seeking Animals album, Spooky Action at a Distance, comes out October 27th on Inside Out Music. And also very pleased about the reissue on vinyl for the first time of Feel Euphoria, the Spock's Beard album, the first one, of course, without Neil Morse. That one comes out November 24th on Inside Out Music. Uh, and I'm told that that is the first in a series. Yeah, I think it's um, most of the Nick era albums. They're doing that, um, which would be Feel Euphoria, Octane, Spock's Beard, self-titled. Also part of the deal was a couple live things. But I don't know if they're going to do that with the live recordings, but at least those three studios. It would probably also should it include uh the 10 x but that was on a different record label so i don't know if they're gonna do a separate deal on that or not but at least those three well that would be great uh for for spock's beard fans and uh, i had i had neil morse on the show before and he he does have plans to release the uh the original spock's beard lineup albums on vinyl as well when he when he gets around to it he's a busy guy uh, that's good i get asked about that all the time Every time Spock's beard does something with vinyl, it's like, what about, you know, the mm -hmm. first six? You got to talk to the man. He owns those. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. 
So I want to start out by, uh, I want to take you back in time. I don't know, for some people, this is a hard question. For others, it's pretty easy. But what was your first favorite record? Um, well, you know, I was, I guess I'm old now, so that's not lucky. But I was lucky enough to grow up in the 60s. And so I was there, you know, for the Beatles and the Stones and all those new bands. and. Uh, my first favorite record was probably Meet the Beatles. I mean, that I think I just wore that out. Monkeys, I was really into the monkeys too. Nice. Yeah. Looking back, that's I mean, I was embarrassed about it for a while, but going back and listening to it again, those are great songs. They had so good of songwriting, all the teams they had writing songs for them, and and <laughs> maybe a little bit prophetic. Um I was a big Star Trek fan when I was a little kid and I saved up my 399 or whatever the albums were back then and went in and bought uh Leonard Nimoy album. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, not everybody has that. If you still have it, it's probably worth some money. I still have it. It's <laughs> it's really funny. You know, as all those actors that used to put out albums, they were really hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and then it, what was cool about uh, some of the stuff you were probably listening to as a kid, you did end up getting to play with Iron Butterfly and Eric Burden and the Animals. Uh, that had to be something uh, all those years later, getting to play with those bands. Yeah, it was cool. I, I remember, you know, th those artists from when I was a kid and then being able to actually play with them. I remember the, when I first got the Eric Burden gig, we did a couple rehearsals before he came in and then he came in on like the third rehearsal and uh, he started singing and it was like, that's the guy, that's the dude right there. So you're known as a bassist, but my understanding is you started as a kid on the piano and then moved to horns. Is that correct? Yeah, I started off, uh, I was nine, started taking piano and, you know, classical and I was really into that. It, but then I got into, uh, like junior high and high school and not much room for a piano in those bands, you know, so I wanted to play in the high school band. So I started playing horns, kind of jumped around from horn to horn. And I was playing uh, bass trombone at UC Berkeley when I first went there. And uh, some friends of mine were starting a band and they needed a bass player. And, and so they asked me if I wanted to play bass and, that was it. That that was uh, that hooked me in. <laughs> so yeah, you went from from playing horns and and piano to to bass. How long did it take you to pick that instrument up and kind of get a good feel for it? Well, I had taken in high school. I had taken a couple guitar lessons because my brother was taking guitar lessons and he quit, and the month was paid for. So I took two or three guitar lessons, and so I learned where the strings were and a couple. Boards. I didn't like guitar at all. I didn't continue. And, uh, but I kind of knew how it was laid out. And, um, I found out when I actually picked up a real bass that I had been a bass player my whole life. I just didn't know it. My store bass parts in my head. And that's kind of a lot of time. That's all I listen to is the bass, bass and drums, you know, good. Mm -hmm. And so when I finally got in this band, I think from, that band starting till our first gig was, I don't know, three or four weeks. So I, I just, I just picked it up and 
musical background, a little bit of guitar knowledge, and then a whole bunch of excitement and desire. And I just, it, it was like really natural for me to start playing bass. That's a, uh, it's interesting that you know, like a lot of people can't wait to pick up a guitar, but for you, you found out pretty quickly. It wasn't for you. Yeah. I still, every time I pick it up, it's like, how do people play these? It's <laughs> everything's really small and it's, it's like, ah, you get it away. <laughs> there was a guy, I can't remember the name of the guy. He, he compiled this book maybe 20 years ago about bass players, how they got started. And almost everyone, hardly anyone starts on bass. Everyone else chooses they don't really choose bass it's like foisted upon them and then they realize that they love to play it and there were hundreds of people in this book and almost every one of them was that <laughs> just wind up with bass because either no one else was could do it or you were a crappy guitar player or you know whatever yeah well it's an important instrument uh and about Spock's beard and, and joining that band because uh, here's one thing I, and I thought I knew a lot about Spock's beard I've been a big fan for a long time I didn't realize you weren't the original first bassist in that band you had, you had replaced John Ballard but do, how did that come about I'm not completely sure I know Spock's first started um did a couple gigs and then it was kind of like okay we've been we did that it's done and then they reformed again for recording and that was rio was in the original version it wasn't even called spock's beard it was called i think it was called one and then um neil and al formed a band again and for some reason john couldn't do it or maybe they didn't like him or i don't know what the deal was with that but Al called me and asked me if I wanted to hear this cassette. Neil had just written a bunch of cool songs. And I said, yeah, sure, send it. And he sent it to me with no mention of needing a bass player or would I be interested. He just sent me this cassette. And then a few weeks later, asked if you know I'd be interested in maybe checking it out, coming to a rehearsal. And so, uh, so I said, yeah, this would be great. I was really hoping at the time for something that would be challenging for me and actually kick my ass. And and that was it, you know, that was good. It was just what I was hoping for. So uh, that's how I got in there. They didn't think I would want to do it because I was playing a whole different kinds of music mm -hmm. back then. And, and I was, I was playing with Eric already and kind of busy with that. And they thought, you know, it's like, Oh, well, he'll never want to do it, but I jumped on it. And so glad that I did. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, and I, I think I can speak for a lot of Spock's Beard fans when I say that your bass playing 
is a large part of what is great about Spock's Beard's music. Well, thank you. And I owe a lot of that to uh, the song, Neil. And Neil is a real genius at, once we started playing and getting together, he's a real genius at learning each musician's strengths and personalities. And he, he writes parts, he kind of uh, gets into the mindset of each player. It's like, this would be awesome. Al would be perfect right here. This, this is a total Dave part. And, you know, he wrote a lot of those parts. And then I took them and it's like, how can I make them even more, you know, obnoxious? And, <laughs> and it, it was a real good, you know, like, like, it was a real good vehicle for me um, because of the arrangements, especially during the Neil area, the era the uh, arrangements were fairly sparse and it gave me room to be completely over the top with the tonality and the aggressiveness and stuff. And, you know, um, yes, it was the same way, you know, I mean, without Steve Howe and, and the arrangements they had and all the different, there would never have been a Chris Squire really, mm-hmm. you know, if it was really dense rock layered arrangements, there wouldn't have been room for that, what he did. So I was really lucky with with Neil having that vision. Yeah, there are there are bands where you don't necessarily you're not able to pick out the bass in the mix. Um I know a lot of a lot of Dream Theater fans are not you know they they always talk about how they can't hear John Myung in the in the mix, but that's yeah. obviously not a problem for you. You mentioned Chris Squire. Obviously there are comparisons to the way you guys play. Did you did you gravitate toward his style or were were there multiple people that you sort of adopted as as models for how you like to play well yeah multiple people as far as just me me playing bass um chris was definitely one of them i mean he that guy will never be duplicated you know um but all of them i mean john entwistle paul mccartney you know that there's a huge list carol k all the the james jamerson david hungate from toto is a huge I'm a huge fan of his playing. It's just perfect, solid, sit-in-the-pocket bass playing. There's a hundred of them. I could I could just keep going. But for Spock's beard, I I just I had kind of randomly bought a Rickenbacker just a few months before that. And it was like, oh man, this is gonna be great. And my goal was I wanted to sound just like Chris Squire, but I didn't know how to do it and I couldn't really do it. And so I had to figure out my own way to get kind of that type of sound. Um, I know how to do it now. And I'm glad I didn't know back then. Otherwise, I would have just tried to clone his sound. Mm -hmm. But instead, I was forced to get kind of an original thing. Yeah, Yeah. he was a, a huge influence on, you know, that's I didn't really play with a pick before Spock's beard very much. Just every once in a while, I'd pick it up for a special effect. but. You know, I had to get the pick technique going for Spocks, and mm-hmm. yeah, it was. Well, I definitely hear what you're what you're saying because the the thing about your playing on Spock's Beard albums, I could I could sort of picture what maybe a, a Chris Squire would play, but your parts are so they're just so damn meaty, and you make that thing growl and make all these kinds of uh, noises that are unexpected, and and it just thinks it, it, it. I think it just adds 
so many layers to to what what the band was able to do yeah much to uh you know other people's chagrin <laughs> i remember al al one time he goes dude you don't even play bass you play mid-range <laughs> like, yep guilty as charged whatever another, whatever it another, was it worked <laughs> our second album and we were in Kevin Gilbert's studio at the time and what we what we normally do and what bass players a lot of the time do they'll do a two tracks one just direct and then they'll do a, a mic to amp or out of their pedal board or something for all the high end and the tone and stuff and they'll use the DI to kind of boost up the low end and give you a nice clean low end mix the two together and we were in the studio and and it was in the uh old days when you didn't have unlimited tracks and we needed a track for percussion or something. And, and Kevin was going through and he goes, what's this? He goes, well, that's the bass DI, you know, in case we need some, you know, mix in low end and stuff. He goes, listen to the mic track. It sounds fine. We don't need it. And he just erased the bass DI track. <laughs> so it was just the mic, mic track, you know, and everyone's going, is this going to be okay? And it kind of became a thing after that. It was like the customary erasing of the bass DI track. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we have Kevin to thank for that, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it was it was really a learning experience being in there with him. He was was um very creative. Oh yeah. Kevin was an incredible musical mind for sure. Yeah. In every aspect too. Producing, engineering, mixing, playing, singing, you know, just he was one of those Renaissance guys with music. Yeah, let's uh let's flash forward to Spock's Beards Feel Euphoria because this album, uh, like I said, it's coming out on vinyl, which is is very exciting. And this is a an album that I think a lot of Spock's Beard fans approached with a little bit of uh, maybe a lot of trepidation. Uh, what's this going to be like without Neil? What it, and I didn't hear any advanced tracks for that. So the first thing I heard was Onomatopoeia on you know track one. Cracks. 
I have to say that might be my favorite Dave Merrow's bass track of all time. It is a monster rock track. Wow. Yeah, that was that album was very experimental. I think everyone in the band knew that we had to step up. Uh, I hadn't written any music for a long time before that. And it's like, I'm going to have to start now. I got my little toe in the water with, with John, with uh, Ghosts of Autumn. But everyone had to contribute and everyone had their own idea of what Spock's should now sound like. And so it's really interesting to listen to that album. It's like the different flavors that everyone brought to it. And uh, yeah, that, the first two or three songs on that album hit pretty hard. I was I hadn't listened to it in years. I just put it on before, you know, this uh, this new deal happened. It was like, wow, this, I wish the whole album was like that. That was great. <laughs> but people were shocked by it. A lot of people hated it because we were going into that more hard rock direction. Yeah, but it was eclectic, like you mentioned. I mean, for for the prog fans, you got the whole Sid guy named Sid uh, Sweet. You've got the uh, the bottom line. You've got um, East of Eden, West of Memphis are, are a little bit different. And then I know you and and I'm I'm sorry if I mispronounce his name. I've never heard it said out loud. John Bogahold is that is how you say it? Beghold. Beghold. Okay, John, and you wrote Ghosts of Autumn, which is an incredible ballad. It's one of my, it's my favorite Spock's ballad and, and maybe, maybe a top 10 Spock's song for me. I, I think it's a fantastic wow. song. That, that's the one that I gravitated toward. Um, a great song is a great song. It doesn't have to be progressive rock. There's there's a couple of ballads on it, and uh, like I said, there's there's prog on it. There's there's uh, driving rock songs on it. It's a little bit all over the place. Were you guys? What was the mood going into writing and recording? Were you guys a little? I don't want to say intimidated, but were you a little concerned that whatever you came up with wasn't going to measure up? Um, I think yeah, of course there has to be that because I mean, look what we have to go after, you know. And but I think once we just figured out, okay, we're going to try to do this, you know, because we just like to play with each other so much. And it was such a cool band. You know, it was like everyone in the band really in, wanted to stay in the band. It's like, we might fail, but we have to try. And once we decided to do that, it was like, it doesn't, it, we're just going to try as hard as we can. And the, the, I think the motivation was really kind of pure and, um, everyone was really excited about what we were trying to do. And we weren't so nervous about how it stood up. Once, once we got started, we just, 
got uh, kind of involved in the process, and and it just was really exciting. You guys have pretty much kept John as part of the writing process ever since. Is he what? What was his involvement before before Neil left, or did he have any involvement before Neil left? Yeah, he he knew you know Alan Neil and me way before. I mean, going back, I don't know when he met the Morse brothers, but I met John in 85 and he already knew them. And John was always there. I mean, he, he did whatever he felt needed to be done. Like he, he has done photos before for us and he designed a couple websites. And, and uh, then when Neil left, he's, he stepped into the songwriting thing and each album increased, you know, with his, his writing. So he's, he's always been there kind of as a, a fifth or a sixth beetle or something, you know, mm-hmm. were you aware at the time of how similar your, your arc was as a band to Genesis with the, the big double album release and then the lead singer leaves. And then you, your, your yeah. drummer speaks, uh, steps out from behind the drum kit to take the mic. Yeah. That was kind of trippy when we thought about that. Unfortunately, we didn't have the big hits after that, but uh, <laughs> that would have been the nice little ad- addition to the story. Yeah, it would. But I think you you had some hits with your fans, and I know that you probably saw negative and positive reviews for Feel Euphoria. What was the what was the overall consensus in the band about the the way the album was received? We were just really happy to to be alive still, and we were really almost surprised that the fans accepted what we did um, as, as well as they did. I think that we were kind of given a pass a little bit because it was so different and people were so bummed about Neil that I could have imagined it being completely, uh, you know, rejected, mm-hmm. but the record company inside out, they just go, Nope, you guys are with us still. Don't worry about it. And the fans, you know, supported us a lot and we were really grateful for that. And, you know, we were really excited about what we were doing. We didn't have, you know, when you get into something, any kind of new relationship, everything is, you know, you're looking at everything through rose colored lenses. And so if, if there was any, we didn't, we didn't see anything bad about it, you know? So, um, yeah, we were just really fortunate. It was a good, good timing, I think too, for, for prog music and for us to come out with something like that and you know kind of everything stayed lined up a little bit enough for us to squeeze through that door and you know kind of start again
did the recording and, and the release of that album, did it give you guys a lot of confidence going into the Octane sessions? Um, yeah, it gave us a lot of inspiration. Definitely. Um, me, I know it definitely did. I I just decided, okay, I got to step up. I got to just get this writing thing going. And I first started, I got my little studio together at my house, which I never really had before. And, and um, you know, I think all of us were really excited that, you know, that we were still there and we were going and we were being accepted and maybe, maybe we could do something with this. Who surprised you during that transition from Neil to life after Neil? Anybody in the band kind of show you something you didn't realize they had in them? Um, kind of all of us for like, Hey, we, we actually can write, you know? I mean, I knew those guys could write. Rio had a couple solo albums before that. And, and Al had uh, a bunch of recording that he had done in the past. I don't think he ever released an album, but I know I played on some of his stuff that he had recorded in the past. And, and, um, you know, Nick is always right. He kind of does everything. So I knew that it was there. I just, I, I didn't know how it would work or, or if it would keep going or if it could be transferred over to a Spock's beard thing. And uh, it kind of did. Everyone really brought a lot of energy into it. So, yeah, I mean, it was another one of those examples of uh, experimentation and hoping it worked and people really putting a lot into it. And so, you know. How, if any, how much concern was there toward making the music sound like Neil didn't? even leave the band or, or was there an attempt to de-neilify your music after that? I don't think it was really a conscious, no one ever talked about that. Uh, but I think we knew that it couldn't be the same. You know, there's, there was no, no reason or no um, desire to try to copy what he did. Uh, one because you know i think that would have been rejected it would have been an inferior copy and um you know everyone had their own idea of how we thought spock's beard should maybe go and so uh, everyone was just flying off in their own you know directions while trying to keep it within the lane of, of spock's beard and progressive rock do you i mean obviously you, you co-wrote ghost of autumn do you have a favorite track on feel euphoria I like, if I had to pick one, I would say bottom line. riff that was a guy uh stan osmos another guy that's that usually contributes like one song to each of our albums after neil left and his song i just love the way he writes and that that song kind of has all the elements and it's stood the test of time too i think yeah that's that's my favorite one also the first two or three songs you know listening 
going back and listening now, hearing the impact, how hard we played those songs, how mm. much heart we put into those, you know, it's those, I still like those too. And then, but I think if I had to choose the one, it would be uh bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. Onomatopoeia is definitely a, a, a surprising first post Neil track. It is, it is a balls to the wall song and it is, you guys play the crap out of that one. It's a great opening track. And um, I just remembered <laughs> we first came out with that album and Neil got a promo copy and I was talking to him and he just goes, uh, wow, you guys like really hard, you know, harder rocking now. And he said it with like a, Ooh boy, I hope that works out for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it was, and you and and you and Nick are certainly uh, the bottom end of that song is uh, really drives that thing, pushes it forward. So, uh, well done. But again, you guys have um, you know, Shining Star ballad, Ghost of Autumn's a ballad, uh, Carry On's a ballad, and then you've got uh, you know, East of Eden, West Memphis, a very catchy song, and then. I don't know what to even make of, and at the time, I didn't even know what to make of the title track. It was so different from anything you guys had done. Yeah. When the clouds are closing in, it's all right. No, I will not give in. It's all right. You can feel my Yeah, that was great. I thought, you know, besides, I kind of wanted it to, I was a real Tool fan at the time, and I wanted Spock's beard to be like Tool with keyboards. <laughs> and so I was kind of pushing for that. And Feel Euphoria was like a, like I, I was thinking, okay, maybe not Tool, maybe this, because it was so like modern sounding and different. And it had like those layered vocals and it's like, this is a cool vibe. I like this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So feel euphoria. I'm, I'm looking forward to adding the vinyl to go with this. Oh, by the way, one of my favorite covers of all the Spock's beard records. I, I love this little, uh, over here, this rainbow coming out of the, the gray and, uh, adding color to the, to the you know, landscape or whatever you call that. But, uh, uh, it was Nick DiVirgilio and lead vocals, drums, acoustic, and electric guitar, percussion, and loops. Alan Morris on electric and acoustic guitars and vocals. Rio Akimoto on keyboards. And, of course, yourself, Dave Maros on bass. And uh, that one comes out on Inside Out Music on 180-gram vinyl, double vinyl. It's a double album on November 24th. In addition to the, if you have the CD, you're also going to get the two bonus tracks, Moth of Many Flames and From the Messenger. Tell me a little bit about those songs. Those, uh, I think Moth and Many Flames was, was an Al song. I don't remember exactly, but I think that's just a demo that Al had. And um, then Rio did The Messenger. 
I think he created that because they wanted a couple bonus tracks. Um, I'm not sure if we had reached the point yet. I don't, there was uh, the Japanese release. I'm not sure if this had one, but Japanese releases, they always want a couple extra. Mm -hmm. And, and so, um, you know, Rio was always good at, at coming up with something for the bonus track. And, uh, just don't worry about it. I'll handle it. And then he just writes something and he goes, here you go. You know? <laughs> now you're old school like me it's got to be pretty cool for these to start coming out on vinyl yeah you know this is blas- blasphemy but i'm not a fan of vinyl at really? all i could not when I, when cds came out in the whenever that was late 70s early 80s i was so happy <laughs> I finally get to stop playing these things you know because, you know, you all the noise and you have to be careful with them. And, you know, it's, to me, it's great. The artwork is great. And just having, I mean, I, I just got this, the uh, Pattern Seeking Animals one the other day. And the 180 gram, it's heavy. Yeah. I mean, it's noticeably heavier than a normal album. <laughs> so I like it as like a piece of merchandise you know something you can look at and read and the font isn't like six point you know it's like guy old guys like me can actually read it. <laughs> um, but but i'm not a fan of of the medium in an audio sense okay and i can argue with the fans of it yeah for hours and hours and no one will ever change their mind it's like politics or religion you know yeah exactly I, I I know where you're coming from. I, I it was the exact same feeling I had at that time, but of course nobody explained to me how you're supposed to take care of your records. So it is a little extra work, uh, a little extra labor uh, to keep them sounding nice. But boy, once they don't sound nice anymore, the, the yeah, you can't wait to get rid of it. And and of course in my little town, I I had we had one little shop where they had records, and if it skipped, you took it back, but. You had yeah. to wait weeks to get a new one because they didn't have another one on the shelf. And then some of them would be like manufacturing defects, you know, like a bad master mm-hmm. or something that was mastered beyond the capability of the lathe that, that cut the master. And, you know, you could get three copies and they'd all skip in the same place. <laughs> That's no good. Now, did you yeah. did you have the did you transition via the cassette between vinyl and cd or did you just go straight from vinyl to cd oh i had cassettes going yeah definitely and that was another format it was like this is really this is how i can play it in the car and this is how i can play it and at the beach or whatever but that was always you know you press the play button and you know you get the hiss and the fidelity was never right and the cassette player would get a little bit fast or slow. And so it'd be a little off pitch. And, you know, so the CD, when that came out, it just took care of all of those problems. Mm-hmm. Problems that why people hate CDs now is as a medium, it's kind of perfect, but people were remastering all these great albums, remastering them for a CD and going over the top with, mm-hmm. with their re remastering and stuff. And, like kind of ruining the albums and it's not the cd's fault it's the mastering engineer's fault yeah and so it gives cds a bad name but you know with uh in the studio i've done ab's 
with the engineer, you know, just going, okay, here is what you guys recorded. This is the master. This is the reel-to-reel tape master. Play that. Record directly from the master onto a CD, and it sounds pretty much exactly like the master. And then you put on a vinyl album, and it doesn't sound exactly like the master. So it sounds good. Mm-hmm. It has a vibe. It really has a vibe. Vinyl does, but it's not, uh, you know, I mean, look at what it has to do. It's a miracle that it even works. <laughs> There's a little needle in this, like, trench with bumps on it. <laughs> it's got to be EQ'd to go onto the record and then e- backwards EQ'd to come off of the record. It's it's kind of a miracle that it works as well as it does, but um, yeah, it's, uh, it's incredible that anyone ever figured out that that's a way you could listen back to things. Yeah, yeah, the technology people were geniuses. I mean, it was all mechanical, you know. Yeah, the things absolutely. Find humans, give us enough time and we'll figure it out. <laughs> Yeah, well, now you're going to have uh, at least a few of these out on vinyl, uh, as you mentioned the other the other Nick albums. Hopefully, uh, hopefully the ten album as well. And uh, and I like I said, Neil did mention specifically that he has to get it done with the uh, the original um, Spock's Beard album. So we're we're looking forward to all of those. But we're not done because you are in another band, Pattern Seeking Animals, and you have a new album coming out here in a few weeks. Uh, Spooky Action at a Distance of Fourth pattern seeking animals album and i'm i'm curious as to how i know this was john's sort of an outlet for john's music but how did this start and end up being two guys you were already playing with and another guy who was already contributing to the albums you were working on after you know john had a backlog of of uh, songs that either he didn't want to present to spock's beard or weren't used by spock's beard and um he, he just wanted to record them with you know kind of proper recordings with real people instead of him and the computer only and so um you know he asked jimmy and i if we wanted to do it and we go absolutely yes yeah, send them along so we we did a few songs like that and it's kind of started sounding like a band and an album so he he finished writing other songs and here was kind of an album's worth of stuff and it sounded like a band and and um he had been talking with Thomas from inside out and Thomas said, yeah, absolutely send it. And Thomas liked it. And so, uh, you know, we signed, signed pattern seeking animals to a, I think that was just three CD, uh, three album deal. And, uh, and all, all of a sudden it's like, I guess we're a band. Yeah, let's go. Sing. 
and and of course you know ted also in uh in spock's beard and it's it now does john do all the writing of all the songs or do you guys pitch in with this with uh with the writing there have been a couple con- con- contributions by ted and by me um but it's mostly john and um you know he writes like you would like uh, a, a, tr- a soundtrack writer would write or an orchestrator or a classical writer you know he'll he'll orchestrate all the parts and there's some latitude in um you know what we can do with those we can interpret them to a certain degree but a lot of things like you know if you one part it's like oh, i i'm feeling something different right here and but i listen to the rest of the tracks it's like no no i got to stay with the cello there or i got to you know, so uh, a lot of it for all the parts are are written out, but we do have some kind of latitude to add. And sometimes he'll just leave a spot blank. It's like, just, I don't know, you're just do something, play, mm-hmm. you know. But yeah, it's, it's, it's mainly, it's mainly him. Now as a bassist, and maybe not just for as a bassist, but this could apply to drummers or guitarists or keyboard players as well. When someone else is writing the songs and you're putting your stuff down. Maybe you don't even know what the lyrics are to this thing yet. How important are the lyrics to you in the, in the final product? Do you even care what the guy's singing about? Well, I have a particular brain that I thought was defective for the longest time, but I found out that it's an actual thing. And there's a lot of people when there's drums and music happening, I can't understand lyrics they can be totally mixed clearly and everything. And I just hear like a sound, like a, it might as well be a saxophone or something. I can hear syllables and stuff, but my brain doesn't really put it together. So, um, I just mainly go on the vibe of the music and sometimes John will send out, he'll send out lyrics like for Ted to sing and stuff. And then I can read them and I go, these are really cool. And, uh, but you know, I'm definitely not one of those people that, that uh interpret the lyrics as i'm playing because yeah. i i don't even know what they are <laughs> now that the reason i asked that question is because john's a really interesting storyteller with a wide variety of interests i don't I, I don't know where he you know he borrows from historical he borrows from fiction he makes things up in his mind and uh and so i was just curious i'm always curious as to when you're making an album and you you get the finished product in your hand, you play it back, and then you find out what they're saying, you know, how how that impacts you at the time. Well, you know, I mean, I just got the Feel Euphoria promo copies. I mean, not Feel Euphoria, the uh, Spooky Actions promo copies. And the album has a really large lyric sheet in it. Mm-hmm. And, and I was just, I wasn't even playing the record. I was just reading it. And the lyrics are just superb. And then when you know that, you know, if I have the lyrics in front of me and listening to the music, it it amplifies the whole thing by 10 times. And uh, yeah, so I, the, the lyrics to all of the pattern seeking animals and this one in particular, I mean, it's, it's when you read it, it's like reading poetry they're really really good lyrics on this mm-hmm. record and then when i finally got my brain to realize what was going on reading along while listening it's like this is great it's a lot better with with the lyrics 
how did you or how do you approach an album recording an album for pattern seeking animals how does it start and do you just do your parts at home in your home studio yeah the drums are typically in the uh the real studio um although jimmy has a really nice setup in his house but um normally the drums are done in the you know the actual dedicated studio and mixing is done in the the studio and string string uh sections are done in the studio most of the other stuff is done at home studios uh we've all got you know now anyone can have a studio if you have a computer mm-hmm. and so i i live pretty far away from everyone else i'm just here in my little cave doing my little things you know and sending files i mean i i never set foot in the studio at all and it's got its advantages and disadvantages the disadvantages are i can't get immediate feedback so a lot of times i'll I'll record like the first 16 bars of the song four different ways maybe four different sounds four different bases or whatever and i'll send them to john i go which pick one you know i i can't decide and so just go yeah i like that one and so then i'll go in that direction and but um what was the question again (laughs) (laughs) it was just it was just about how you record it you've answered it um so that makes it makes a lot of sense that's the way that a lot of bands are doing it these days especially ones that aren't um you know don't have big record label backing and that kind of thing so uh it's about what i expected but um when you when you worked on this album let's talk about your equipment what what bases did you play on this record i played uh, a lot of weirdos um because that's a lot of what i have are just weird bases things that i've kind of like bastardized you know mm-hmm. I mean, oh, this would be great if i added a thing here or in and so i played from Iron Butterfly, I had a replica of a Moserite bass, and it's got really old flat wound strings on it, and it's got a total sound. And I used that, I think, on two songs, a total flat wound with a pick. And then I also have a, a Fender Precision bass that has really old strings on it. I mean, like 25-year-old strings. That thing just sounds great, and I use that for a song or two. Then I have a couple bases that aren't Rickenbackers, but I've modified those so they sound like a Rick, and I use those. Some bases I'd use, I mean, some songs I'd use two bases, like the intro intro and verse would be a bass with flat wounds, and then all of a sudden here's the Rick sound that comes in. So, I mean, that's one of the advantages to recording at home. I can have everything that I own within 10 feet of me, and and just keep experimenting but that's also a downside because i tend to go down rabbit holes with that Mm. just try too many things it's like just pick one (laughs) (laughs) now do you ever get concerned what 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 do i do if i have to play this live oh yes yeah and we all kind of faced that when we had gigs booked fine it's like oh my god how are we going to do this (laughs) and it's it's one of the hardest gigs I've ever done, I would maybe say it is the hardest gig to play live that I've ever done. And I mean, there's there's a lot of times it's fun before a gig, you're excited and you wanna go out and show people. And these ones are like, for me at least, just anxiety. 
there's so much memorization and so many different weird things and the way everything is written it doesn't really sound that complex but when you go to memorize it 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 is and it's the kind of thing where if one guy screws up it's like knocking the do first domino over and then everyone's kind of screwed up for a while and you have to like kind of force it back into track and yeah so uh we used um you know uh, we ran to tracks too because there's just two like choirs you know and and weird parts that you can't really replicate mm -hmm. those run into tracks and then the poor keyboard players walter you know he's playing mandolin and guitar and three different keyboard parts and dennis is playing the other six keyboard parts and those guys put in so much work getting their soundscapes together and learning all the weird little parts and stuff and you know ted instead of doing his guitar tracks and then vocals he had to do them both at the same time there's a million different guitar sounds and you know thank god for digital now because you can he's got one of those um um helix deals and you can program all different kinds of stuff in it you don't so you don't have to bring a wall a refrigerator sized rack of gear yeah but yeah getting a live thing together was completely a challenge I will say that that's one thing I noticed. You mentioned Ted and this guitar. Uh, to me, it seems like Ted has found a very confident level of guitar playing uh, that earlier in his career, you know, he hardly picked one up on stage. But now it seems like he's extremely comfortable with the with the uh, with the instrument. Well, you know, that's that's what he likes about this band, I think, the most because he's always been that level of guitar player. Hmm but he never had the chance before he was like the singer and then it's like well we have this other guitar part and so can you do that and so he's always been like caged in always wanting to break out a little bit more and then this is his chance in 2010 or 11 or something we started a cover band because he moved up close to where i was and uh he was you know the guitar player and the singer and you know he's equally talented in both areas and so uh you know this was a great chance for him to show show the world it's like look i can play this thing <laughs> yeah it's good that he could do that because there are a lot of people i mean you're in a band with doug ott you know there's i mean that's doug ott when you're in a band with alan morris there's alan morris you know what do you what else do you need but it's good it's good he, he does a great job throughout this album he's really got some fantastic solos in this uh on uh spooky action at a distance now uh, this band is, uh, we, we talked a little bit about it. Ted Leonard, lead vocals and guitar yourself, Dave Maros on bass, Jimmy Keegan on drums and John Beghold on keyboards and production. And you guys took a little bit of a different approach to your backing vocals on this album. There's some extremely interesting and, um, and, and amazing backing vocals on this, especially a song like, um, well, the man made of stone for one and clouds that never rain. That's another one that I think that the, the backing vocals really help make the song something even bigger and more interesting.
Yeah, there's a, there's a couple songs on the album that were co-written by a friend of uh, and former bandmate of John and me too. I was in the 80s. I was in a band with uh, this woman, Diane Boothby, who's an incredible songwriter, singer. You know, it's it's one of those one of those artists that should have been up there in the Kate Bush, you know, thing fell through the cracks like so many of us do. And um, she co-wrote a couple of those songs with with John. And so she is the uh, background vocals, does a lot of background vocals on that. And, um, you know, yeah, I think it sounds great also. You have um, not a lot of epics on this album, but uh, He Once Was is a 12-minute song. Very interesting. Um, again, a, a good lyric song, a good story song. I think Ted sings it. It's very simple lyric that re- returns with um about the man uh, the man he was um i met was i met a man in town today uh what he did he did not say i mean very simple but ted really sells it and it's an interesting song and you guys kind of stretch out in the middle of this song this one of the things that you guys try not to do as much because of your affiliation with Spock's beard, or do you even think about it at all about the lengths of these songs? Well, it's, um, I know that, you know, as we go from album to album, John's gotten more into like pruning things down and not, not stretching them out for the sake of having a long song. Uh, there's actually, you know, it's kind of weird, but there's actually a little bit of pressure to do long, songs formats in Prague. Mm-hmm. people are sometimes impressed when you just before the album comes out and you you post the song titles and the lengths and they're just going "Ooh, 17 minutes that's going to be good and you know it's kind of it's kind of funny but um you know we're kind of bucking that trend a little bit and uh you know getting things down to the the nut of the song a little bit more we always have one that you know, John would be the guy to really talk to more about that. But I know he's kind of consciously pruned things down a little bit. But if the song kind of says, I feel like going in this direction, he'll definitely go there. Mm-hmm. Now, Ted's voice is what Ted's voice is. But you as a bassist, you have you have different choices of what you can do. Do you do you do anything different uh, for this band to differentiate your playing in Spock's beard? Or do you not worry about that? Yeah, I try to do Spock's beard. You know, like I was saying, it, it gave me the opportunity to to be the obnoxious bass player that I always wanted to be. <laughs> um, because of the arrangements and because of the instrumentation and the writing, 
and um, you know, different writing and stuff. I don't want to force that into places it won't fit. So uh, I could have made a joke about that right there, but I won't. <laughs> so I try to get an idea in my head. I've I've got a lot of hero bass players and a lot of a lot of favorite bass tones. And uh, you know, like on this album, I played basses with flatwound strings quite a bit, really. And I really like playing with flatwounds. I mean, I think I'm, you know, turning into a poor man's version of Pino Palladino or something, you know, mm -hmm. being known for one thing. And then at some point in your life, deciding you want to play a bass with flatwounds, you know, I'm going, I'm, I'm going there. Every time I pick up one of those basses with the flats, it's like, ah, oh, this is so fun and it sounds so good. But, uh, yeah, it's mainly about what the song kind of asks for. And uh, when I was younger, I used to develop a sound. It's like, okay, this is my bass. This is the sound I get. It's as good as I can get for what I like. That's what it is. You know, and I've become much more schizophrenic in my older age, collecting all these weird instruments and wanting to use them all. You know, and so yeah, my playing is a lot different than it was in Spock's beard. The tonality, every once in a while, I'll, I'll go back to it, but it's similar but different and sometimes quite a bit different yeah that's i noticed that um, that's that's why i asked the question about whether whether you try to play differently because it isn't uh, it isn't the same stylistically necessarily it isn't the same tone necessarily it 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 isn't that big thick meaty chunky growling thing that you do on some of those uh some of those Spock's beard albums but uh, it is still it suits the songs perfectly and, I, and a lot of these songs um, from pattern seeking animals and on this album in particular they're they're progressive rock but they're tight they're catchy they would fit in with a musical format on on many radio stations the the one one of the interesting ones that stuck out to me though was window to the world because it's got that police vibe that reggae ska vibe that something that was on the original demo or did you know was uh, what was the thought behind going that direction that's a very different direction for you guys that was uh quite a you know the the demo goes back his original demo with diane and was done in the uh 80s maybe 1990 but late 80s probably i think and um that had a uh, the melody and the the lyrics and stuff were pretty much intact on this version the arrangement's really different and uh i don't know john gets inspirations from a lot of different areas and and uh you know he'll something will strike him and he'll just go go that direction the interesting thing about progressive rock and it happened with that song is that sometimes when you first listen to a record you don't know if you like it or not you have to hear it a couple more times it was one of those that I didn't really care for the first time I listened to, but the more I listened to it, the more and more I kind of 
got it and got into it and and I enjoy it quite a bit now, but at first I really wasn't sure about that one. Well, that's, yeah, it is weird. The way different people hear different things because I wanted that to be the lead, lead off song. Oh, so really? This, this one will just, this one grab everybody. Just let's do that one first. I can't remember what the first one is now. It's, in. it's a man made of stone is the, the oh, yeah. track. Yeah. So I thought window of the world was the most catchy one. So, you know, but I'm always wrong. Always. <laughs> when it goes like, what order do you think it should be going? It's like, do not ask me because I'll be different than everyone else. Again, variety is the spice of life. I, one thing I too, that I loved about Bulletproof was that you guys inserted the name of the band into the song lyrics. And I don't know if that's where it originally came from, but I always love when bands do that. Yeah, that was, um, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Cause that song was, one of the bonus tracks on one of the Spock's albums. And uh, John liked that word. And so when it came time to have his own band and name it, he named the band from the lyric of that song. Mm, I like it. That's great. So this is available. It's it's a, an LP, which, uh, which got two live bonus tracks. This double CD has... Uh, an additional studio track and three live bonus tracks. So you've got a variety of things that you can uh, purchase to get all of the music. Um, and the the live bonus tracks are from a festival appearance. Is there a festival appearance in the future of Pattern Seeking Animals for this release? There's nothing planned at the moment, but you never know. These things kind of come up. Um, you know, we kind of put our our name in for, for a lot of them and, and whether they happen or not is up to the promoter. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, the, that one just, uh, happened to be a really, you know, good festival that had recording capabilities. So that was, that was easy to grab the, the tracks and, and mix them and make bonus tracks from it and YouTube songs and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, the great thing too, about having you guys all in the same band and, uh, it makes it easier for a festival promoter. You could have, uh, you could actually have both bands, Spock's Beard as well, because you you've got you know a, a good chunk of the band right there. Yeah, I think if both bands were playing, and my brain would just explode. I, too much, too much info, too much data processing. Fair enough, fair enough. All right, so obviously, Noise Floor was the last uh, Spock's Beard album in 2018. That's five years now. What is the current status of that band, and um, and what? I mean, Nick did drums on that, but he's not officially a band member. Is there a, a plan to do another album and would Nick do the drums again? Or or do you even, have you even talked that far in advance? We've talked, uh, last year we talked a little bit, had some, had some talks that, you know, like these summits that all the countries go to, the talks <laughs> fell apart and on the second day of discussion. And so we had a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. And the plan for Spock's beard is not to really have a plan, take things as they come, you know, evaluate things on a one by one situation. And, you know, I mean, the, uh, we're getting together a little tour for, I think, February of 2024. And uh, so there's, you know, that and uh, it just I don't know things could happen or could not it's kind of open-ended never say never mm-hmm. right now there's no no specific plan to record uh another record what was it like when you 
you heard that there was going to be a snow concert at Morse Fest. Yeah, that was, I think enough time had passed. The timing was perfect for that. Uh, Niels has a lot of wisdom in, in those kind of things, you know. He just sent us the idea. And whereas a few years before that, there may have been a couple holdouts. No, I don't want to do that. But mm-hmm. everyone was just going, okay, this could work. It could be, it could be cool. And sure, let's go for it. And uh, it turned out so good. I mean, better than I thought it would. And the live DVD, in my opinion, is better than the studio album. And having having Jimmy and Ted in there, and the whole Spoxbeard family, it was it was great. It was a real great experience and something of of value. I think you know. Well, for certainly has value. I, 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 when I, I remember when I got it, I played it and I just like, what is this salty discharge coming out of my eyes? What is <laughs> yeah, Neil, Neil had a few moments there, you know, where, okay, I got to keep singing. I, how am I going to keep singing? I'm being overcome at this moment. Yeah. Very, very emotional moments on the stage for him. And, uh, and you're right. It's it just the fact that the entire band was together, everybody that was formerly or currently in the band being all together in one place was it was just a very special moment for Spock's Beard fans. Yeah. And having all those people, all those voices to sing and two two drummers to play. And it was just it was kind of, you know, one of those situations that should have happened and finally did. And um, you know, it was a um an open end, an un, untied end for Spock's that was now completed, and you know it was it was it was a good thing to do. Oh, good. I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that you guys did. I'm sure that all your fans are as well. So, when somebody brings this Pattern Seeking Animals album home and they play it start to finish, maybe they're laying in the dark, got the thing cranked up. What do you hope that they take away from that experience at the end of the uh, listening of that album? Ideally, it would be to have the same kind of uh, thing that I used to experience when I was younger and a new record would come out and you'd take it into your room and the lights would be kind of low and you just sit there and listen to it. And, you know, you hear it with full concentration all the way through. And it's kind of a this is not like a dancing record, you know, it's not something that you'd party to. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a listening record and it's kind of like uh, art rock, I would say, you know, just as much as prog rock. And so I hope people could hear it with an open mind and, and absorb and accept all the different musical influences and, you know, hear details. There's a lot of details and also read the liner notes, you know, because the uh, the lyrics are just superb. I mean, you can you can read the lyrics and not need the music. The lyrics are in rock, you know, are often really weird and mm-hmm. a lot of times kind of silly or just spacey. And they sound good when they're sung, but they don't really make sense if you read them. And these things they're just great. They're completely standalone quality. So you know, if someone can just absorb the whole thing, I, I would. That would be my hope that people would give it that kind of a chance. Yeah. 
All right. Well, uh, the album's called Spooky Action at a Distance from Pattern Seeking Animals. Comes out October 27th on Inside Out Music. And if you're a Spock's Beard fan, uh, you're going to want to pick up the Feel Euphoria 20th Anniversary Edition on vinyl November 24th, also on the Inside Out Music. The first in a series. Very excited about that. I, I have a small vinyl collection. I like to ki- collect my favorite artists, and I want the whole Spock's Beard catalog on vinyl because I'm a completist and I'm a whack job. So uh, I'm looking forward to to these things getting made and then hopefully uh, the Neil ones and the Ted ones getting made as well. So uh, Dave Maros, this has been a, a real treat for me. Always been a big fan of Spock's beer. Really enjoyed uh, talking to you, learning a little bit about these records. Thank you so much. I wish you nothing but the best of luck with the, uh, with the success of these two releases. And uh, I know that pattern seeking animals has a Facebook page. Where's the best place to get Spock's beard information online? Well, we also have the Facebook page and also uh, a website. And I think it is psanimals1.com. I think that's what it is. But um, something like that. If you just Google search pattern seeking animals, you'll you'll find it. Those are the two richest sources of info. And uh, there'll be merch available at um, Bandwagon, which is a, a company that sells merch for different bands. And so, uh, you know, you can... You can buy stuff there, t-shirts and whatever, or back catalog and new ones. He slipped away into the woods that night When the winds blew cold and the moon was hiding Along with trees that glow in fox firelight A path once clear, now uninviting I mean, I know when you we do these interviews, you you put this thing to bed a while ago. Uh, are you currently working on something? It hasn't gone to the point of sending tracks around. Uh, but yeah, John has already started writing. I've heard a couple couple things that he was ideas that he's had. He writes all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if it's every day, but it might be every day. It's like his what he does for relaxation, I think. He's always coming up with ideas. He's one of these guys that he doesn't understand what the word, what the term writer's block is. It's like, (laughs) people have that. I don't, why would they have that? Just, you know, just write. He's always listening to music too. So I think that's keeping his ideas input, you know, Mm -hmm. constant input of ideas. And um, yeah, so I know that he's writing and his goal is to do an album a year, which is, you know, pretty steep undertaking, especially with all the production that goes into it. Yeah. And, uh, so he's been keeping up with that and, you know, he writes all year. A lot of times when we record, record a whole album's worth of stuff and he doesn't feel like it's sitting well together. And then he'll write a couple more 
and then that'll round out the album. And then there's leftover ones that'll get transferred to the next album or maybe a bonus track or something. And so, yeah, he's just a little creative machine over there. Well, you've been, you've been blessed with a couple of them because I don't think Neil ever stops writing either. No, he's one of those. I've, I've seen like in, in when we were going to gigs together in the car or something, like he was in the Eric Burden band with me for a while and I'd be driving and he'd be in the past and we'd be talking and all of a sudden he wouldn't be responding. And I just like look over there and he'd be just, his eyes would be closed and he'd be just like, in the middle of a conversation, something like lightning bolt went in and he started writing a song, maybe something that one of us said. And he just gets these inspirations and it just starts happening in his head. And fortunately, he has good enough memory to remember all these little bits that happen too. And then he can take them home and assemble them and, and follow them through. Yeah. But yeah, his, there's people that are just natural, natural writers. And, John's one and Neil's one and you know I'm lucky enough to be tagging along <laughs> yeah I always feel like people that sing that that have half hour long songs they need to have good memories yeah, <laughs> yeah is- Neil Neil has a uncanny memory his Alan and Richard the two other brothers they also they remember stuff they can reach back and it's like oh I was reading a book when I was in eighth grade and I really like that one line and it's like what, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I used I used to be like that back before I uh, my hair started turning gray, but not anymore. <laughs> yeah, Dave Marrow, Spock's beard, pattern seeking animals. Thank you so much for your time, sir. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun for me, and uh, again, nothing but the best with these releases. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, and thanks for the help promoting it. And thank you. Michael's Record Collection is hosted and produced by Michael Citro. Logo graphic courtesy of Jerry Cutchins. Follow Michael's Record Collection on social media, at Mike's Records on Twitter, and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. If you like what you hear, you can support the show through our Patreon at patreon.com slash Michael's Record Collection. For the free newsletter version, go to substack.com and just type Michael's Record Collection into the search bar. Thanks for listening.